This situation will last a bit and be prepared for the new norm, which is we're not going to see the customers, right? So in the absence of the customers where we still want sales, what do we need to do? What, how does the platform comes in to support all these things? What needs to exist? What are the services? How do we do it? What's the processes and stuff like that? And that's the reason why the engineers are actually more busy this period of time because they are busy building off the platform for us to, to, to function properly or in fact better uh, moving forward. From McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to the first episode of The Venture. And today I'm excited to have Aaron Tan, the CEO and founder of Caro, on the show. Caro is the number one automobile marketplace in Southeast Asia. Aaron has grown Caro since 2015 by leaps and bounds. There's a lot to cover. Aaron's move from VC back to being an entrepreneur, what Aaron thinks about the clone versus create debate, and why engineering talent is now more critical than ever. Welcome, Aaron. Great to have you. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. We first met while you were at Singtel's venture capital fund called Innovate. Uh, since then, I've jumped into consulting and you've jumped into entrepreneurship. Been really looking forward to this conversation. So take us to the moment back in 2015 when you decided to move from venture capital into founding Caro. What was the original inspiration? Take us through the decision-making process to commit to it. First, for those who don't know, please break down different parts of Caro. So, you know, Caro started uh, back in 2015, mostly as, a, as an auto marketplace, right? So what we do is that we actually specialize in wholesale marketplace for cars, right? Which effectively means that uh, we, we buy and sell cars or we facilitate the, the trading of vehicles amongst wholesalers, right? So imagine if uh, the Hondas, the Toyotas of the world needs to sell a, a used car vehicle. He doesn't do it manually one by one to an end consumer, right? So typically there is a, a platform such as ours. And then uh, that goes out to the smaller used car dealers. So it's largely a B2B business. And that's how uh, you know, the business got started uh, three, four years ago. And, and very quickly after we did that, we started moving into financing. Now, the key difference for us is that we, did, we, we felt that financing was a very, very important vertical, something that we needed to get it right. Uh, we, we decided not to partner. Rather, we decided to underwrite credit ourselves because we had the technology. Or for that matter, we had the signals and know-how that, uh, that even the banks wouldn't have. Right? It allowed us to underwrite very well, right? In fact, our default rate of our B2B loan book has been 0% to date, right? Working uh, on wood, but you know, uh, things might happen. But generally, uh, we, have been, we have been growing very, very healthily on the loan book part of stuff, right? So the, the company broadly is, brought, is, is split into three main verticals. Uh, number one is the marketplace, right? Number two is the financial services. And within financial services, we actually own our own uh, insurance company as well as a uh, as financing company across uh, the region. Uh, and the last part being after sales, right? Where we talk about, okay, what can we do for workshop repairs? What can we talk about spare parts, et cetera, et cetera. So broadly, uh, as a company, you know, we have raised more than $100 million in capital. 
uh, you know, companies of four years each. We have about 400 plus people now across Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, as well as Singapore. Something you may not know is that I started my first company when I was 13, right? So that was uh, more than about almost 20 plus years ago now. Uh, by the time I was 20, I sold a couple of companies. So I've always been in, in, uh, in, in business, so to speak. But, you know, when I was, when I was in my teens, I, against my better judgment, I took a government scholarship from, uh, from IDA. And uh, that actually prompted me to, to effectively then ended up studying, doing my undergrad, my postgrad in the, in the United States. Specifically, I did it at, uh, at CMU. So computer scientist by training. Uh, you know, and since I took a government scholarship, I had to come back and serve my bond, right? And, and fast forward, you know, uh, many years after, my, after I graduated, I was also very lucky because I, I always say that I was the only person that actually decided to come back and serve my bond earlier than the rest of my counterparts. Primarily because they were all having fun in Lake Tahoe. I decided to start my bond earlier. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, and, and, and then as a result, I ended up as a, as a VC. So uh, I started my career back in 2010 as a VC, and that's where we, we roughly met, right? 2010, 2011-ish, uh, when you, you, you relocated from the US and came over and stuff like that. And, um, and you know, I, I spent five years there. In between, I set up many things for them. Uh, most notably, I set up the SF San Francisco office. And after the SF office was done, that was back in 2015, uh, my bond, ended with the Singapore government. And that's where I decided, okay, you know what? Uh, it's time to go back to, to, to do fun things again, right? So to speak, because it's not that investing is not fun. It's just that sometimes, you know, when you deal with the entrepreneurs every day, you just wonder to yourself, why are you doing this, right? And uh, so from my standpoint, it was, it was number one, just to go back to, to starting a company. I, and I really, really enjoy building things from scratch. Uh, number two, uh, to, to satisfy that each, so to speak, right? Because uh, during my time in Singtel, I, really, I didn't really do too much uh, entrepreneurship stuff, if you may, right? So it's a lot of investing. I learned totally different skills. And I was also eager to understand what I have learned and how applicable whatever I've learned in, you know, in the five years in the venture fund is to starting a company. And that's, that, that's, that was really what prompted uh, this whole idea to, to go back into doing things. The question that I get a lot is, then why do something in automotive? Right? Why, why not do something in, I don't know, restaurants or, or go and start, do something like virtualization, which was my, my, the thesis for my master's. You know, the truth is, um, during my, my last year in San Francisco, so I was based there 2013, 2014-ish. Uh, by the time 2015 came, uh, that, was, that was the time when I came back to Singapore. And the last few companies I met uh, were, were a lot of automotive companies, number one. Number two, I was... As a VC, I, I found out that, or rather I realized that, you know, for you to be an interesting backable company, you need to go after large verticals, right? Which in other, in other words means automotive, uh, you know, insurance, financial services, you know, uh, a bit, uh, bit properties as well, right? And that's what was the reason why we chose uh, of the many verticals, right? So we, we primarily chose four verticals. The Chinese would say yi shi zhu xing, right? Which is basically uh, clothing, which is fashion, right? Uh, second one is food. Right, third one is uh is is where you stay too, right? So you know properties, and the last one is uh, travel, right? Which is effectively uh uh, uh cars, right? Motorbikes and stuff like that. I look at the market, you know, at that point in time, I see oh Lazada, Zalora is here to stay, so that's pretty much gone for the e-commerce part of stuff for fashion as well. And then uh, you have companies like uh, Property Guru uh, in the property space, and then you realize that okay, you know what? When there's Anything that is going to be uh, interesting over the next five years or so is going to be somewhat automotive related because back five years ago, that was where Uber first started, right? Uh, and if you look around the global comms at a point in time, uh, we look at Rimventure, we look at uh, Yusing Pai, Guazi, etc., all the Chinese comparables, or even Carmax, right, uh, in the United States or Copart, so to speak. 
uh, we realized that you know what the automotive industry so to speak is uh, has more potential and i guess is there is a lot of uh, historical companies that has grown big and uh, and has remained big and uh, as a result we thought and we look at southeast asia we say look there's a white space for for automotive and that's the reason why uh, we started with the automotive space uh, back five years ago there's this whole, whole debate around cloner create you know should an entrepreneur enhance an existing model or put pressure on themselves to break out and do something completely new by 2015 carvana uber and room in the states were already a few years old did you take any inspiration from their model and growth no so at a point in time actually uh, it, it has a lot more to do with my time uh, studying in san francisco i mean studying in in, uh, in pittsburgh so as a result i i, I bought quite a bit of Kind of quite a number of cars, right? So, uh, one thing that stuck with me always is that there is Carfax and there's Kelly Blue Book. So KBB and Carfax, which are the two main things that you you go and you you know you start looking for, uh, and then you realize that in Southeast Asia, such things doesn't exist. What does Carfax tells you? Carfax tells you the history of the car. Has it been an accident? When was it repaired? Was it a, a leased car, right, etc. Uh, what does KBB tells you? KBB tells you what's the pricing of the car, right? If you're trying to sell it direct, what's the pricing? If you're trying to sell it to a dealer, what's the pricing like? So it gives you a lot of transparency, it gives you a lot of information, and as a result, that helps you with the transaction. Now, if you look towards Southeast Asia, you realize that none of these things exist, and they don't exist for good reasons, right? And, and as a result, uh, as we look at the models in the US especially, uh, a lot was, was, uh, was taught or learned when I, when I was studying there, right, back more than 10 years ago now. And uh, fast forward 10 years today, you know, in Southeast Asia, a lot of what we do early on in this business especially really was, was based on the understanding of what we felt was right for a market, right? Like for instance, we tried doing uh, uh, KBB, right? Uh, for Southeast Asia, almost like a blue book equivalent here, where we allow for instant pricing of vehicles. Uh, we are doing in our, our, our in, in, you know, workshop systems and stuff and whatnot, but the basis of it is to build the Carfax business, right? Uh, across Southeast Asia as well. But, uh, but yeah, you know, you, you are right in the sense that, you know, as we look towards it, uh, I personally don't think that there is a good need to say that, oh, let's be, super innovative and come up with something that is entirely unique. I think there are gaps in the market. Uh, not that all gaps is equally translatable. So I'll say from the US, you said, oh, there's this gap that exists, but in Southeast Asia, that may not exist. And that's where you come in as, a, as an entrepreneur or as someone that actually understands Southeast Asia to understand, okay, where's the opportunity? How is the risk like? Uh, is, this, is this a potentially big enough opportunity in Southeast Asia? Does this particular culture or this particular uh, need uh, exists in Southeast Asia, and if so, is there uh, an incumbent? If there's no incumbent, why, right, and stuff like that. So long and short of this is that uh, I, I think that is is uh, we looked at a ton of uh, of businesses across uh, USA, and actually more so in in China. Because if you ask me, I think Southeast Asia, uh, we are much more similar, or rather, much more. We are more similar to uh, the Chinese market versus uh, the the American market, so to speak. Yeah, it's just a very different way of the, how the market has evolved. As you were getting started in 2015, you know, you're an experienced entrepreneur. There's always risks to jump in and there's always assumptions that you need to make. Uh, what was the risky assumption you made before you had any customers? Um, the main risk, actually, to be very frank, we didn't really have too much of a risk that, uh, that we have seen over the last uh, few years. And, you know, I always joked with this with my earliest investors, which is, um, I, I always remember the first PowerPoint deck that I did, uh, that was back in 20, late 2015, uh, that roadmap that I had, 
uh, for that matter, the whole ecosystem play that I had uh, back then in 2015 still applies today. And that was the same deck or the same slide, so to speak, is the one I still use today. So, you know, on that, in that, on that note, uh, life didn't really change too much for us, right? Uh, the, the business, in, in some sense, has grown pretty much to where we, where we were and where we wanted. The main thing that was different was that early on when we started, and this, you know, coming from a venture background, we all know this, which is uh, VCs hate backing companies that are asset heavy. Right, so if you know if you sit a lot of cash, if you buy a lot of inventory and stuff like that, um, that is something that that uh, you feel at least from a VC standpoint that 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 will be something that's frowned upon, right? So you know, even as a company, I I uh, the truth is till today we try not to take that kind of risk, right? Where where we where we try to take too much inventory and stuff like that. Uh, but what I always tell people externally is that various funds invest in various things, right? So in some funds prefer Accept heavy business, then look for look for that kind of funds, right? Especially strategic funds like Toyotas, the Hondas, the Suzukis of the world. They would love to invest in something like this, which is accept heavy, right? But if you're looking in traditional venture funds, then you know it might be tough because they might look at this as risky and stuff and whatnot. Yeah, but for us, we haven't really uh, needed to choose between that, right? Uh, we have been quite lucky. We have a balance of both kind of investors and stuff like that. A lot of our clients are able to ideate and build an MVP. But often there's a gap in capabilities in order to grow and scale, whether it be product management, performance marketing, data, and analytics. In this stage of Caro, what are the capabilities you're prioritizing? What are the priorities in your hiring plan? Where are you focused right now? Um, as I think this question really depends on, uh, on where the company is in various stages, right? So my, my, my focus shifts every other few months, right? So at this point in time, as part of COVID, actually a lot of my focus is on cash flow, right? So a lot of my cash, my focus has been about uh, the last month, especially the last two months or so. Uh, a lot of my focus on my time has been looking at PNL, right? So every day I watch it like a hawk, almost like what's my AR, what's my APs, right? Right? Uh, or for that matter, uh, what is the projected default rates, right? Uh, because we do we do have quite a big financing business, right? So you know we are we are very uh, we watch our numbers quite closely, so to speak. So two main things. I mean, the the main metric I look at now is burn. Right, uh, or rather, matter what's expenses like, right? So that's the main metric I look at. But generically, the the what I did uh, during this COVID crisis was the first thing was to was to cut my marketing cost to the minimal as much as I can, right? So that's the first thing that goes out because nobody is buying vehicles anywhere, right? So that's the first thing that that goes out from that standpoint. Uh, but the the next thing that we focus on really a lot is what what is going to happen moving forward. So as a result, uh, we actually hire more engineers, so to speak. In this period of time, right? Because for us, it's okay. Uh, it's business as usual anyway. For the engineers, they can work from home, they can work from anywhere, and we have a very distributed team anyhow from day zero. So you know, in that sense, the focus is on two parts, right? Number one, on 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 managing cash. Uh, uh, number two, on managing engineers and making sure that the engineers are building the system to future proof ourselves, right? So two things that we invest in at this period of time. Number one for growth. Number two for uh for 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 making sure that the company stays afloat. For a long, long time. For instance, uh, you see, for us, what will likely change, and I personally believe that this COVID situation will last for a while, you know, a while being more than 12 to 18 months, potentially, even longer than that. Uh, and even in, in the period of recovery, we will likely see a W-shaped recovery, right, instead of a V-shaped recovery, right? So it will be up a little bit and then go back down and up. God knows when the, the virus will come back to hit. But the, the long and short of this is that we, uh, we continue to invest in the, uh, in the future of the business because the current situation is that now, okay, the, the, the problem being posted to us is now you cannot meet the customers. You know? So i.e., the car literally almost has to be sent across to them, right? 
So is our system able to do this today? Now, last time, you know, we were relying, say, for instance, on e-signing, uh, sorry, not e-signing, but uh, on paper signing of, of uh, I don't know, higher purchase documents. Is there any way for us to bring this entirely online, right? It's not like we didn't want to do it earlier, but earlier on, we couldn't for legal reasons, right? But now, given this situation, is there a potential for us to, to, uh, to bring the entire higher purchase document or for that matter, change the higher purchase act so that you know we can then uh, e-sign higher purchase docs and make it legally binding so stuff like that so things like this are, are then where we come up with products and services uh where we want to future proof ourselves so as i always told my management team and we have it every monday i always tell them this this situation will last a little bit and be prepared for the new norm which is we're not going to see the customers right so in the absence of the customers where we still want sales what do we need to do what how does the platform comes in to support all these things what needs to exist, what are the services, how do we do it, what's the processes and stuff like that. And that's the reason why the engineers are actually more busy this period of time because they are busy building off the platform for us to, to, to function properly or in fact better uh, moving forward. And I always tell my guys this, which is as a tech company, from the, tech ground, from the background of the management team or even from the, from the ground up as we build the business itself, majority of our spend is in engineering. There is no reason why we will be able to do any worse off than... Um, than a, than a traditional company. We can only do much better than them because we know how to harness technology to get things done. You have 400 people on the team. What are you doing about culture and, and gathering feedback? You know, what about team culture now, now that we're all remote? Any tips on how to maintain the sense of purpose and passion? I, I try to do this uh, more. I mean, the, I mean, the standard programmer way of thinking about things is always divide and conquer. Right. So what I always try to do is that I, I, I don't believe that I don't believe like you're like, oh, let's call, call for a huge town hall of 400 people and then try to get things done. Because first of all, our companies are spread across like five or six different geographies. Right. Because we do have engineers in China. We do have engineers in Vietnam and stuff like that. And by the way, English is not, I mean, not necessarily the language that everybody understands. Right. So the, the likelihood of us doing like a town hall that 400 people exist is, is not possible. So what we then do is that we split it up into small different teams to allow them to go and uh, get things done. All right, themselves. What we do is that we put together handbooks, we put together guidelines to, to discuss things so that things get distilled downwards. So the, the first few things we just did recently was we, did, we just did a survey actually of an entire company to understand where things are with, with people, right? Um, so for us, the, the, the number one trans, uh, culture thing that we always try to embrace is openness, right? So, you know, if we're not doing a good job, please, we would love to understand why we're not doing a good job and we would love to understand why, uh, uh, how we can do it better, right, so to speak. So for us, it is always about divide and conquering, right? So for me, what we do is that we, we have a, a baseline guide uh, across 12 of my department heads, right? And then uh, it's up to them to then implement this across uh, within that next day or two, right? To how to, to push culture down the road. Uh, it's easier said than done, but we try to make sure that uh, uh, a lot of the, the team stays constant, right? The team that we discussed, the T-H-E-M-E, the teams, right? Uh, we've discussed stays constant. Uh, across the across the group and we try to listen to feedback uh, as much as we can this is an ongoing debate and i just had this discussion with my management team on monday which is you know when you do a survey like this should it be anonymous or should it be uh named right uh my the last one i did just uh, last week really was uh, was uh, was named because i <laughs> the i firmly believe in the fact that uh we are not we are joining this company not in need of a job, i.e. we are not worried about our supervisors, you know, uh, harming us or doing any bad things or any karma stuff against us. So as a result, I want people to speak their mind, right? So as, you know, I, I actually purposely left it as a, as, a, as a name survey 
so that people uh, can come up and tell me what exactly is going on, right? And I, and I don't think that we have an issue internally where people do not dare to speak up, right? So for me, it is about, uh, yeah, it is about making sure that the, the company, uh, the people give uh, useful feedbacks, right? I think that's what's more important for me. Has it been anything useful? I think it has, right? So like, for instance, uh, we started uh, being more, uh, communic- so we started sending more communication stuff across the, the, the groups because some people were complaining that, oh, we do not know what's happening now in certain parts of the company, right? Or I was like, oh, I wish I can work with these guys. But they didn't know that, that, that actually that division has been open, right? Like for instance, our financing business, uh, they are allowed to open uh, at this point in time because they are part of essential services. Yeah. Anyway, so stuff like that. So we, we, we increase our ability to communicate with, uh, with, our, with our stuff, right? And we have many groups. It's like all over the place now. But yeah. Yeah, so it's so you're it's sort of natural already for you to operate remotely and and I guess get collecting feedback that's not anonymous. You you've been able Correct. to create a culture where there's there's no um there's there's no uh downside for someone to 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 be honest. Correct. You know, on the, on that point on on survey, we're going to do a quick uh lightning round. You ready? Yep. Um okay, who would who would you want on your board, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs and why? Uh, Bill Gates because he's alive. <laughs> okay, other than that, <laughs> nah, joking. Yeah, I, I I generally think that the the in a board, right? You need people who are less uh, mavericks, people who are more about governance. And uh, okay, in a world without Caro, what startup or company would you want to work for? I will be in a venture fund. I'll go back to what I do. Yeah, I I actually love my time in the venture fund. And you, I think you referenced this before. What single metric at Caro keeps you up at night right now? Burn. Burn. Yeah. It was profitability. <laughs> yeah. Describe your culture, Carlos' culture in one word. Uh, open. Okay. Uh, you know, Aaron, thanks so much. Um, you know, I love some of the things you said about um, your culture, divide and conquer. It's good to hear how you got started um, and finding gaps in the, in, in the marketplace. You know, a lot of clients feel sometimes this pressure to create some amazing new business model but you can find gaps and enhance things and localize them, uh, which, which sounds like what Caro has done great. So looking forward to um, what comes next for, for you and Caro and let's keep in touch. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. In this segment of the episode, we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights from research and from talking to CEOs about some key themes. And some of, some of the themes you talk about with CEOs, uh, we call think big, move fast. Uh, basically, where, to, where should you play in the market? Uh, closing the capability gap. What types of uh, talent and, and capabilities are you trying to optimize? And scaling from one to ten, you know, be moving beyond the MVP and getting to real growth. And uh, my journey as an entrepreneur started many years ago. I've I've launched e-commerce companies, uh, loyalty companies, data companies, uh, and and that journey brought me from the U.S. to to Singapore about ten years ago. Uh, and now helping large incumbents launch their own startups. Uh, we also have uh, I have Thomas Labotka here from McKinsey's business building practice lead. 
Thomas is an experienced entrepreneur himself. Uh, Thomas, what struck you the most from the conversation today with with Aaron? Hey, thanks for having me. Um, it the first one that really struck me was the first steps which he took. Right, think big and then actually start small and sprint. And he did that seemingly in three steps. He looked at the large market. Um, he looked into China, U.S., asked himself, ask himself, you know, what are the key segments? Financial services, insurance, big properties, automotive. Then step two is, okay, what's missing? What are the services which are missing in those industries? And then looking into the culture match in this region, um, can this work here? And eventually he went to the third one and he started looking into the incumbents. In the, in the last step, he's, he looked into, is there any strong incumbent? Yes and no. And why? And after getting all the answers, which drove him towards Caro, he just started sprinting, focused, and went all in. Yeah, I mean, uh, I liked how he described how he started. He solved one specific problem being, how do you price used cars, right? And, and build trust around the mm. pricing. And that, that then built uh, lots of services around financing and insurance. Uh, what also struck me is he's investing during um, during COVID nineteen in more engineering talent. So he's not uh, he's not just kind of waiting it out. He's already uh, he's already investing. He's clear that he's looking at um, uh, his daily burn, which of course is uh, you know any founder would be doing right now. But he's also investing in, in in engineering in the right places. When we when we got to the lightning round, we talked a little bit about culture. What uh, any reaction to that? Yeah. You know, he said one word, open, right? And he, he referred to it already early in the, in the conversations. And it was clear that uh, he, as many of the CEOs that we see from the search, has, has the mindset of diamonds are made under pressure. When the situation is tough, let's make sure that my, my burn is, is, is low. I pay attention to my pebbles and all of those first resilient moves. But then you really want to continue with bold actions. And bold actions translate into investing, investing into engineering, investing into talent. And he is so focused on investing into talent and building up culture, which is open, open in, in communication, open in terms of engagement. And I, I find this was something that really struck us as we, as we speak about the, the 400 people that he ultimately asks, not anonymously, what is it that he should be focusing on and where, where should they go? So the open is something that really stood out. Yeah, not not an easy thing to do to to maintain culture, especially when everyone's uh, working remotely. Uh, th- thanks, Thomas. Appreciate the, the comments. So that about wraps it up. Stay tuned to discover more exciting conversations in our upcoming episodes. As always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Venture. You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.